Welcome to another episode of Free Exchange, the official podcast of the Badger Institute. We have with us Matt Erdman, our completely dependable producer who always makes us sound good. Matt, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, it is always a pleasure to be uh, with you, Michael, and looking forward to uh, just another episode of Moving Wisconsin into 2023 on, on very strong footing. Yeah, we really are kicking off the new year here with, I think, a wealth of great content for anyone who's interested in making Wisconsin a better place to live or work or do business. Our mandate for Madison, which we released just at the end of 2022, has 300 pages of fantastic content on taxes, school choice, transportation funding, free market health care, and, and a whole range of issues basically designed to help Wisconsin become more competitive, to help provide more opportunity and more flourishing for the people of the Badger State. And uh, our guest today and our topic today could not be more timely. Uh, actually, it is spot on in terms of the conversation that we're having here. The Badger Institute is often described as a free market public policy research organization. But what does that mean? What is a free market and why is it critical to human flourishing? Our guest today is James Bone. James is an economist with over 30 years of experience in government, business, and academics. He served as an assistant vice president and senior professional with the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. He holds a doctorate in business economics from Harvard University and is a CFA charter holder. And Jim uh, currently resides in the Milwaukee area, although he is in Arizona at the moment, uh, where it is much warmer than it is here in Wisconsin. Thank you, Michael. It's a, it's a delight to be here. So you recently wrote for us a chapter in our mandate for Madison, and that chapter is titled Free Market Reforms That Will Make Wisconsin Thrive. In that chapter, you really focused on, you know, we describe ourselves as, as a free market organization, and the the key there is economic freedom. So let's start off, just give us a little bit of a, an indication, what, what is a free market or what is economic freedom and why is it so important? Sure, let's start off by talking about what a free market economy is. In a free market economy, individuals are free to work, free to produce, free to consume, and free to invest in any way that they please. Economic outcomes are largely determined through individual choice and voluntary market exchange, rather than by government, and through the political process. Now, in practical terms, economic freedom is a matter of degree. Government always has some role in the economy, whether it be simply as enforcer of the law or enforcer of standards and, and regulations. And even the, in the very most controlled economy, there is some role for individual choice. Essentially, what happens is that there's a continuum in terms of economic freedom from the most free, where the market economy determines more economic outcomes or a larger set of economic outcomes to economies that are less free in which government and political processes have a larger impact in determining who gets what and what's produced in the economy. And you note in your chapter that states with more economic freedom, such as lower taxes, less onerous regulatory policies, tend to grow more rapidly than states with less economic freedom. Talk a little bit about why that is. Sure. Well, when individuals are free to make choices, they're free to use their resources, their talents, their skills in the most productive manner possible. Likewise, 
when individuals make choices regarding investments, they're free to make investments in the way that's the most productive and the most efficacious as well. And to use the knowledge that they have to uh, determine uh, where you know, resources are allocated in the economy. On the other hand, when government does it, government is by its very nature a rather blunt instrument. Government doesn't have detailed information regarding uh, what's going on in, at individual firms and in individual markets. And as a result, when government makes decisions, there tends to be a lot of error, a lot of misallocation. In addition to that, government makes decisions based upon largely political considerations. And when um, decisions, economic decisions are made on the basis of political decisions, it's not necessarily the case that the uh, resources are put to the most productive use, but rather to the use that's most favored by the government official or the politician that's making that, that decision. So as a result, free market economies have both an information advantage over, over government and also an incentive advantage because individuals have strong incentives to use their, their talents and resources in the best way possible. In contrast, government has neither of those advantages. And as a result, the market economy tends to be more efficient and more productive than uh, a uh, government-controlled economy. And Jim, I'm old enough to uh, kind of remember, we had a pretty good laboratory between kind of the free market West and say the Soviet Union in, in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Back in the day when you had options to buy from free market economies or centrally planned economies, very few people were buying automobiles if they had a choice. Very few people were buying automobiles or refrigerators that were manufactured under the, the communist or socialist re regimes. You, you never saw you know, new and innovative products like the iPhone coming out of you know, planned economies. Are you concerned that today um, there's more and more openness to the idea that if we just get enough of the smart people in the same room, that they can, they can sit down together and plan an economy for the United States that's, um, that would be better and more beneficial, more egalitarian than the sort of uh, disparities that we see in a free market economy? Well, back in the 1940s, Friedrich Hayek, who went on to win the Nobel Prize in economics, pointed out the knowledge problem. And one of the problems with planned economies is that you have relatively limited knowledge on the part of the central planner. Whereas in a market economy, you have the price mechanism and you have individual incentives that are making decisions. So, you know, by its very nature, going to be a more productive economy when individuals are able to fully use their knowledge and have incentives to use their resources in the most productive way possible. I am concerned about that in the West these days. There is a uh, economic freedom index that the Heritage Foundation produces. And that economic freedom index is at the national level. In the paper, we deal with economic freedom as it's applied at the state level. But you can also construct similar indices at the, at the national level. One of the findings of the Heritage Foundation which has been producing this index for, you know, at least since the mid-90s, is that over the last decade, economic freedom in the United States is waning. The United States used to be one of the most free economies in the world. We always think of the United States as the land of opportunity, the land of individualism, and the land of capitalism. Traditionally, America had been ranked in the top five or and certainly in the top 10 among the economies of the world. The most recent uh, Heritage Foundation ranking, though, 
America was quite low. I'd have to look at the exact numbers. I thought America had fallen in the 20s, actually, in terms mm. of its economic freedom ranking, which suggests wow. economic freedom is waning in the United States, and that's a huge concern. You can see lots of evidence of that as well. The uh, size of the federal government and the amount of transfer payments have gone up. Fiscal probity is part of the Economic Freedom Index that the Heritage Foundation produces. We've had huge deficits at the federal level for the last, say, 15 years. In addition to that, regulation and government intervention in the uh, productive sector of the economy is going up. We just had an enormous bill that was enacted, the CHIPS Act, which subsidizes semiconductor production. We've seen increased regulation coming out of, of Washington, D.C. I think those uh, think tanks that are producing regulation indices find that the first two years of the Biden administration have seen an uptick in regulation compared to the Trump administration, which is very proud of itself for reducing regulation. So I think we're seeing you know, a decline of economic freedom here in the United States. And I think that's a very big source of concern. So Jim, as an economist, as you see the work of the Heritage Foundation and others, how do you, how do you measure economic freedom? Economic freedom indices tend to be composite indices rather than single indices. For instance, one might compare tax levels in, in one state to another. That'd be a single instrument index. But economic freedom is many dimensions. As I mentioned, characteristics of the free economy are freedom to work, to produce, to consume, and to invest in any way that the individual sees fit. And the freedom indices try and capture the various dimensions of what makes up a market economy. At the state level, freedom indices generally look at things like the level of state and local expenditures relative to personal income or GDP of the jurisdiction. They also tend to look at labor freedom because that's an important you know, aspect of, of economic freedom as well. Does the state have, say, a right to work act in place? Or is it the case that union density in that particular state is high or low? And finally, there's components of these freedom indices that tend to look at the amount of regulation that the state has in, in place. So for the non-economist, how do you know that these indices that you compile, these uh, three-dimensional looks at a state or a national economy, how do you know that they're actually meaningful? How do you determine if they have any actual relationship to actual economic outcomes? Well, uh, the proof here is in the pudding. That is, if the freedom indice is good, it should predict particular economic outcomes. So for instance, there've been a lot of studies that have employed economic freedom indices at the state level or at the national level and looked at the correlation between the index and economic outcomes. At the state level, it could be unemployment, it could be wage growth, it could be the amount of investment that the state attracts, the amount of in-migration that the state attracts. And we asked, whether or not the index has any predictive value for those economic outcomes. If the index does have predicted value, we can ascertain from that that the uh, way that we've measured economic freedom is, is fairly valid as a predictor of economic outcomes. Now then the question becomes, it does more freedom result in better outcomes or worse outcomes? And Given that there's been a very large literature that's looked at the relationship between economic freedom and economic outcomes, the uh, you know, overwhelming message from that literature is that states and jurisdictions that have higher levels of economic freedom tend to have better economic outcomes. 
whether it's measured in terms of unemployment, wage growth, in migration, foreign direct investment, or any other set of economic variables that you would determine are desirable in terms of their effect on the, the local economy. So in your chapter in the mandate for Madison, free market reforms that will make Wisconsin thrive, you note that Wisconsin has been moving away from the progressive economic model toward one that is more market oriented. In, in what ways has Wisconsin been making positive progress and what does that look like for our economic stability, competitiveness, et cetera? Well, the freedom indices themselves suggest that Wisconsin is making progress. That is, we see Wisconsin's ranking moving up over time. The paper looks at the period between 2000 and, and 2019, the period for which I had data from both the uh, Cato Institute and the Fraser Institute, a Canadian think tank that compiles economic freedom indices at the state and provincial level in Canada and for states within Mexico, but just confining the discussion right now to the uh, United States. What we see is upward movement in Wisconsin's ranking from the year 2000 to the year 2019. And much of that upward movement occurred during the Walker administration starting in 2010. And there were some very well-known pro-freedom measures that the Walker administration undertook when it was in office. For instance, the Walker administration enacted a right-to-work statute here in the state of Wisconsin. Right-to-work allows individuals greater economic freedom because they no longer are subject to the requirements they have to join a union to work in a particular uh, establishment. Likewise, Act 10 and reforms that reduce the level of expenditures in the state also contributed to Wisconsin's growth in, in economic freedom during that time. You saw Wisconsin decline in its relative ranking among the states in terms of state and local tax revenue relative to personal income during, during that time. So those changes you know, within the period between the year 2000 and the year 2019 drove Wisconsin's upward movement in terms of, of economic freedom. But even if we go back further in time, the Fraser Institute's index goes back to the late 1970s. And we can look at Wisconsin's ranking as it evolved over that period of time. Back in the early 1980s, the period that uh, conformed to the Earl administration between 1983 and 1986, Wisconsin was one of the states with the least level of economic freedom among the 50 states. According to the Fraser Institute's Economic Freedom Index, Wisconsin ranked 47th between 1983 and 1986. Wisconsin's economic freedom ranking was down there with states like New York, West Virginia, Alaska, not places you'd want to be in terms of any league table. And since that time, you know, Wisconsin has done a very good job, I think, moving from the very bottom of the pack in terms of economic freedom to the middle of the pack. Other indications of the uh, growth of economic freedom in Wisconsin over that time are apparent as well. So for instance, the Tax Foundation, every year they compute the uh, level of state and local income tax revenue relative to personal income. Back in the period that I mentioned between 1983 and 1986, Wisconsin was second highest among the 50 states. Only New York was higher in terms of 
state and local income tax revenues relative to personal income. Now, Wisconsin is much closer to the middle of the pack. I checked the 2023 ranking that the tax foundation put out. Obviously, it relates to 2022, but their most recent data suggests Wisconsin is 19th, which is quite a change from where we were 40 years ago. Folks, I'm interrupting real quick to remind you that productions like these are only able to exist with support from individuals just like you. If you find value in this program, we're hoping you may want to give just a little bit of value back. The Badger Institute is a nonprofit organization that strives to create opportunity and protect liberty for all Wisconsinites. We do not accept government funding and rely solely on the generosity of individuals like yourself to support our policy and advocacy work. To learn more or make a donation, visit badgerinstitute.org. I want to get back to taxes in a little bit because we've done work with the Tax Foundation for our mandate for Madison and made some specific recommendations for Wisconsin. But before we get there, you know, we are located near high-tax Minnesota, uh, high-tax, high-regulatory Illinois, and and so on. One of the arguments that you make is that if we have a free market competitive economy in a state like Wisconsin, we should see more in migration. And I think we are seeing some of that from Minnesota and Illinois, but we could see a lot more, which would be, I think, an answer to prayer for a lot of our employers here in Wisconsin who do not have enough people to do the work that they need to produce. Can we make our state more competitive, more inviting to people around the country so that as they're fleeing Illinois or Minnesota or California, one of the places they're looking to come to is Wisconsin? Absolutely. I mean, one of the messages from the economic freedom literature is that economic freedom at the state and local level is a draw. And the lack of economic freedom is a sink. People don't want to live in states with less economic freedom. They want to move to states with more economic freedom. One relationship between economic freedom and labor market outcomes is that there's faster wage growth and lower unemployment in high freedom states because people have better ability to use their talent and employers better ability to manage their businesses in the most productive way possible. Low unemployment and high wage growth are definite draws from people in high unemployment and low wage states. So that certainly would be a, you know, a boost to Wisconsin in terms of encouraging more in migration. Likewise, entrepreneurial individuals are attracted to high economic freedom states. We see this nationally as companies are moving to Tennessee, to Florida, to Texas, all high economic freedom, low tax, low regulation states. So to the extent that Wisconsin can continue to move in the direction of providing more economic freedom within the state, that will be a draw to both individuals from out of state, entrepreneurs from out of state, and companies from out of state. And, and people make the argument that, well, you know, Texas, Florida, even Tennessee, they're, they're, they're drawing people from the cold climate states who, you know, just want to be where there's sunshine and warmth. But a lot of people are fleeing California, which I think really undermines that argument. And, and states like Idaho are seeing growth as people flee the West Coast. Uh, Idaho is not exactly, um, you know, Arizona. Does that uh, kind of put to rest that, that argument that it's basically based on weather and sunshine? It certainly does. You know, previously I lived in the state of Massachusetts and right across our northern border was the state of New Hampshire. 
And uh, you could see people, you know, leaving Massachusetts, moving to New Hampshire because of uh, low taxes in, in New Hampshire. And uh, also, you know, a sense of, of greater freedom in the state. It's easier to develop and uh, housing in New Hampshire than in Massachusetts and, and so forth. So, you know, Massachusetts and New Hampshire, both being cold weather states, but you saw one direction in terms of migration. Likewise, Professor Hansen in his a paper, which was part of the uh, mandate for Madison, has a analysis of interstate migration. The you know largest set of in-migrants from adjoining you know, states are in-migrants from Illinois. According to Professor Hansen's data, about 90% of the net in-migration from adjoining states to Wisconsin is in-migration from Illinois. Now, the fact of the matter is, both Wisconsin and Illinois have cold winters, but Wisconsin actually has a slightly colder winter than Illinois does. Wisconsin is a mid-ranking state in terms of economic freedom. Illinois is a low-ranking state in terms of economic freedom. In terms of uh, fiscal policy, I think Wisconsin's fiscal policies are better than the fiscal policies in the, uh, the state of Illinois. Obviously, the state of Illinois has got enormous fiscal problems with its you know, pension plans and so forth. Wisconsin doesn't share at least that degree of financial distress. So there's a prime example of cold weather not being a deterrent mm -hmm. to in-migration. Absolutely. So personalize this for me a little bit, Jim. As If you're talking to a listener who is a, a dairy farmer or a barista here in Wisconsin, how does economic freedom impact that individual? Well, that individual would be able to keep more of what he or she earns. That individual would have greater flexibility in terms of running their business, in the case of the dairy farmer, in the way he or she desires. And that individual would have more flexibility in changing occupations if he or she desires. In addition to that, there's a you know, a factor that's related to opportunity, which is oftentimes something that we don't think of as, you know, necessarily important because opportunity can be, you know, rather abstract. But the fact that you've got more opportunities outside of your particular line of work, or outside of your particular employer, outside of your particular career is a plus. So that barista or that dairy farmer, if he or she decided to pursue another line of work in a more robust and free economy would have better alternative opportunities as well. Yeah, and I, I think that's important. You know, when people hear of discussions about uh, tax reform or uh, the regulatory burden, whatever it might be, their eyes may tend to glaze over and uh, it may not feel like this has much application to them. But in reality, if the state of Wisconsin has a freer economy, has freer markets, the entire economy benefits from that, which lifts every circumstance, every situation, every individual as a part of it. You know, if I am a barista, somebody who's, you know, 21 years old and uh, looking for, you know, new opportunities, 
there may be uh, you know entrepreneurial opportunities to maybe start your own business here there may be opportunities to go from working at the coffee shop to working at a fine dining restaurant whatever it may be uh, the, the 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 stronger our economy is the freer it is the the more immeasurable and tangible opportunities are out there for each of us as an individual to grow and flourish and prosper and to pass that along then to the next generation mm-hmm. yeah and those opportunities are particularly important to two groups that I'd like to, you know, highlight. First of all, young people. You know, youth is a time of discovery, and it's also a time of exploration. And having a lot of opportunities out there provides young people with a better chance to get a good start in their their career. Or if they choose a particular path that doesn't work out, to shift to another path. Likewise, opportunity is particularly important for those who are at the fringes of the economy. When economies are booming, that's the time that employers are reaching out to find individuals who perhaps have not had a great work experience, maybe have some blemishes in their education record, maybe a criminal record, maybe are in a unfavorable geographic position, you know, whatever it, it might be. A booming economy creates opportunities for those individuals to become more integrated into the the world of work and into society as a whole. And that's very, very important. So young people and people who are on the fringes of society and fringes of the economy are the ones that benefit the most from greater opportunity and greater economic freedom. Yeah, I think that's such an important part of this discussion. And even in some of the writing that our own uh, policy director here at the Badger Institute, Patrick McElheron, has done, one of the lines and one of his pieces from the last couple months uh, really stuck out to me. And it was, everyone wins when the guy who is going to create the business that employs your future son or future daughter uh, decides to stay in Wisconsin. And so when the conditions are such that they know that they can not be subject to any undue tax burden uh, and and have an idea and, and see that come fully to fruition uh, in the state of Wisconsin as opposed to a Tennessee or to a Florida, then the sky is the limit. And the type of jobs that we don't even know exist right now can exist in 15 and 20 years. And so the opportunity even for your children begins to skyrocket as well because the conditions of the state are such that it is welcoming to the type of ideas and the type of prosperity that is going to continue to build the future that we all want, that we don't even know what it is yet because it's it's so good and wonderful. If I could add like a personal anecdote, when I was a uh, young a student at the University of Wisconsin, I came of age in the period between 83 and, and 86 when Wisconsin was ranked at the bottom of 50 states or near the bottom of the 50 states in terms of, of economic freedom. And I remember one time that I went up to the old Commerce Building on the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus and was looking at the uh, bulletin boards, and I spied an article that really caused my heart to sink. It was from United Van Lines or American Van Lines, and they you know, did an annual survey as to the proportion of rentals that are from out-migration versus in-migration to every, every state. And I spied in that article that Wisconsin ranked second lowest, that is, it had the second highest rate of the use of van lines for out-migration relative to in-migration. 
at that point, my heart just sank as a you know native Wisconsinite. So I definitely can personally identify with you know the feelings that uh, that you mentioned as to how it can be difficult for young people to you know plant a stake you know here in the state of Wisconsin and more difficult to plant a state in a state where the economy is struggling than a state and where the economy is thriving. And uh, you know, having lived out of state for many years and coming back, you just see a visible difference in Wisconsin between the Wisconsin that we have today and the Wisconsin of my youth. People vote with their feet. If they yeah. have greater opportunities across the state line, they're gonna head in that direction. Let me just touch on a few numbers here in Wisconsin uh, that we've we've heard recently. So the, as you know, Jim, the Wisconsin has a forecasted $6.6 billion budget surplus. At the same time, we're slipping competitively, especially when it comes to taxes. You, you did mention the tax foundation. We are still rather middling when it comes to our, our tax ranking. That's in part due to the fact that our top marginal rate of 7.65% remains among the highest in the country. There are only eight states that have a personal income tax rate higher than our own. And that has a huge impact on business as well. It's not just personal income taxes, but approximately two-thirds of our pass-through business income affects small businesses that are taxed at that rate. Uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota will soon stand alone with the highest top marginal individual income tax rates of all the non-coastal states. So if you look at the, a map of the United States, you see, you know, the, the high tax New York and New Jersey on one coast and California and, and Washington on the other coast. And then there's this little tiny island right in the middle where Wisconsin and Minnesota remain a high tax outlier. Our corporate income taxes at a rate of 7.9% is higher than the top rates of all but 12 states and the District of Columbia. Our uh, economic output per person, which we kind of talk, we touch on in the mandate for Madison, which was once growing about the same pace as our neighbors, we are now lagging during the recovery and we are the second worst among our Midwestern peers. And our Midwestern peers are not exactly, uh, you know, just, just thriving. 25 states have lower top rates than they did a year ago. And if I can quote Patrick McElheron again, he writes, by standing still, we're falling behind. So your report has suggestions as to how to make us even more competitive, make our economy even more free. Talk a little bit about some of the conclusions you came to um, in your report. Well, certainly tax reform would be helpful and particularly timely given the large budget surplus that Wisconsin is enjoying right now. I did a review of the economic literature and there's also a very excellent review of the economic research on the effect of taxation on business employment and business location decisions that appears in the tax foundation piece that was part of the mandate for Madison, as well as my own piece. And the overwhelming consensus among economists is that high tax rates tend to be a deterrent to, to economic activity. So to the extent that businesses have you know, locational opportunities, they tend to avoid being in, in high tax states. The paper that, uh, you know, I highlighted in, in my piece, which I think is actually extremely compelling, looks at the effect of corporate taxes and individual tax rates on business location decisions at the establishment level. This is the finest level of data that the government collects. So for instance, the government collects data on 
how many employees and what sales are at each business establishment of a particular company. So this is very fine micro data. And what they find is that high individual tax rates, in particular high top marginal tax rates, tend to be a deterrent to the maintenance of establishments as well as employment among S-corporations, those businesses that are organized as pass-throughs, sole proprietorships, and uh, partnerships. Likewise, high corporate tax rates are deterrent to employment and the maintenance of the business establishments in states with high corporate tax rates. What's particularly interesting about this study is that they controlled not only for tax rates at the individual and the corporate level, but they also controlled for what kind of other tax incentives that the states may have in place. And the fact of the matter is that high individual and high corporate tax rates are returned to employment and locating a business in a state, even after controlling for those other incentives. So definitely Wisconsin being as an outlier, as the Tax Foundation uh, points out in their piece for the mandate for Madison, having very high individual tax rates relative to adjoining states, that's a drag on productive activity and employment growth here in, in Wisconsin, no doubt about that. Another thing that I mentioned in my piece for the mandate for Madison is the constraints that Wisconsin is likely to face in the future because we have projected very low rates of growth in the population of Wisconsin that's within the typical, typical working ages. Generally for uh, individuals, productivity tend, generally tends to peak somewhere between the ages of 25 and the age of 54, which are called your prime working years. And Wisconsin has a very low rate of growth in its population that is within its prime working years. Within the next 20 years, the population of Wisconsinites that are in their prime working years is expected to grow by less than 2% compared to about 14% nationally. So we've got a, you know, a, a very slow rate of growth of our, of our labor force. And Wisconsin employers at least currently are saying that they're having difficulty finding, finding workers. Well, the inability of the state to grow its uh, population of prime age workers is not only gonna be a deterrent to overall economic growth, but it's gonna put fiscal strains on the state of Wisconsin because these are not only prime in their working years, but prime in their tax paying years as well. One way to solve that is through in-migration. And uh, you know, we talked about the benefit of more constructive tax policies and economic freedom in attracting in-migrants. One particular policy that Wisconsin could undertake to make it more attractive to those individuals that are in their prime working years is to reduce the barriers to in-migration that are derived from occupational licensing requirements. The uh, mandate for Madison has a section on occupational licensing, which is, which is quite good, and uh, mentions that such things as the recognition of licenses that are granted out of state and expediting the processing process for licenses would encourage people to move into the state, both by reducing the time it requires to make the adjustment in their uh, licensing status, but also removing risk because you don't know if your existing qualifications are gonna conform to the licensing requirements 
of the other state and whether the process is going to be smooth or uh, you know rocky until you get that that process going and uh, any you know risks that are involved as a deterrent to inbound migration by you know otherwise qualified uh, qualified individuals the uh, the piece that was in the mandate for Madison and occupational licensing you know it mentions that occupational licensing requirements fall particularly hard on low-income individuals which is very true but another group which I'm particularly concerned with and we discussed before are young people young people also by their very nature tend to be incomers into occupations they're not the incumbent and the barrier entry that are created by occupational licensing requirements fall particularly heavily upon young people. And I think, you know, that also should be an important part of the part of the debate on occupational licensing as well. Yeah, those are the very people we need to attract and keep in the state. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and that's another area where Wisconsin really is lagging. We have seen over the last couple of years, a lot of states obviously moving to, to flat taxes, and we've touched on, on that. But we also have seen a lot of states uh, really tearing down a lot of the, the barriers for people with a, a licensed profession to move into their state. So many states have made it much easier for people to come in and continue working with an existing license. But when you come to Wisconsin, sometimes you have to wait weeks, months, over a year to continue to practice something that you've been doing maybe for a dozen years and are and have a degree in and have passed the national exams. But Wisconsin makes it very hard for that uh, to transition to take place here in the state. So in terms of moving Wisconsin to a flat tax, as we have recommended in our mandate for Madison, tell me what your answer is to those who kind of play the class warfare argument that, well, you know, those people who are rich, they should be paying more than their fair share. And can Wisconsin be competitive by maintaining its current progressive tax and high top rate income tax, while other states around the country are either going to a flat tax or many of them have no income tax at all? Well, I think Wisconsin needs to reduce the marginal tax rate on the the top end. Wisconsin's clearly an outlier nationally. It's an outlier within the, the Midwest. The only states, as you mentioned, that have a higher top rate are, are Minnesota and states that are on the uh, the coast, primarily in the, the Northeast and in, and in California. You know, when you think about Wisconsin, Wisconsin needs to be a very competitive state. You know, states like New York, California, well, California has climate, fantastic beaches and so forth. New York, the finest harbor on the East Coast, those are very unique assets that those states have. Wisconsin, its assets, forests, farmland, you know, you can find that in other states as well. What we have to rely on to be prosperous are the talents of our people and the, uh, you know, the skills of our, of our workforce. And to the extent that our tax policies allow entrepreneurs and individuals to unleash those talents to the best, you know, application possible, that, I think, is the secret to, you know, growth and prosperity here in Wisconsin. Well, our guest today, again, has been James Bone. James, I really appreciate the work that you've done for us. Again, the chapter is Free Market Reforms Will Make Wisconsin Thrive, which is in the Badger Institute's Mandate for Madison. You can find that at www.badgerinstitute.org slash mandate. Uh, you can also find our work there on flat taxes and a whole uh, variety of issues 
that again are designed to make Wisconsin a better place uh, for prosperity, opportunity, and freedom. I really appreciate your time, James, and I hope that you will enjoy the Arizona weather for those of us who can't. It has been a delight to work with the uh, Badger Institute in this particular exercise.